his comment, but we're glad that he's here. Glad that things are going well. He's growing and uh, everybody's doing good. Uh, definitely a great addition to our family. Uh, for the last several weeks, we've been um, in the book of Second Timothy. In fact, uh, prior to that, uh, with a little break in between, we went actually went through First Timothy. So we've covered First and Second Timothy. Last week was the last uh, sermon there. There was a couple of verses that I didn't get to, uh, that I didn't really expound upon, but they were verses that kind of stuck with me through the week, and I was kind of seeking the Lord and praying, you know, where do we go next, knowing that Ruslan and Sharon will be here this next week, and, and uh, where do we go into a fall series, what's, Lord, what are you saying, and, um, and there was something that kind of had, had stuck in my mind, both from Second Timothy and so as I was praying about it, and the Lord kind of gave me these two verses, just only as a kind of a launching pad for today, um, and so we're, we're not going to be in 2 Timothy other than to say, uh, reiterate Paul's words from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Like I said, this is just kind of a, a launching spot to give us perspective of where the Lord's taken us today, but he says there at the end of... Uh, at the end of chapter 4. Now remember, these are Paul's, perhaps his last written words to any believers. And so he says this, he says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Knowing that His time was near, uh, this is kind of another way of the Apostle Paul saying something that he'd said several times, both to the Corinthian church and to the church in Philippi. Uh, In fact, I'll just read what he says to the church in Philippi. He says this by way of uh, exhortation. He says in Philippians 2.16, he says, Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. This message to Timothy was kind of another way of saying, hey, uh, what God has had for me to do, hey, it's not in vain. Even though this might be the end of it, this is not in vain, Timothy. Uh, the, the, the ministry God has given me, uh, the message that God has given me to share with the world, the fact that I'm, I'm facing... Uh, danger on every corner, that I've, I've been one of those thrown to the lions. I face that on every corner. Uh, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. Definition for the word vain is, uh, the, here's my definition, it's all for nothing. That's what the word vain means. That it's all for nothing. That it's worthless, that it's unproductive, the dictionary says. That's what the word vain means. And uh, Paul's been telling Timothy, he tells the Corinthian church, he tells the church in Philippi, hey, it's not worthless. It's not worthless. What you're putting your hand to is not worthless. We're going to dive into a psalm today. Turn to Psalm chapter 127 to see how we can avoid doing ministry in vain. If you're there, if you've got your Bibles open and your cell phones open to the Bible app, not TikTok or Candy Crush, 
make sure that we're all on the same page. I'll just go ahead and read it, and then we'll go back to the top and dive into it. A Song of Ascents of Solomon, Psalm 27, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall, <clears throat> they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this particular word. Uh, Lord, that uh, it would encourage us that we would take on the same attitude and actions and, and vision that the Apostle Paul has where he says, hey, none of this is worthless. It all counts. It all counts. And uh, Lord, help us to hear from you today that each one of us could leave here challenged and moved by you to put our hand to the things that you've asked us to accomplish, uh, to speak to those, Lord, that you put in front of us to share your gospel and your greatness and your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 127, as it says there at the heading, uh, was written by Solomon. Now, Solomon is King David's son of uh, uh, the heir to the, to the throne of King David in the Old Testament. Uh, Solomon was the one that built the temple in Jerusalem. David was not allowed by the Lord to build the temple because of the, the, not because of his sin, but because he was a man of war. And so he reserved that, the Lord did, for Solomon's hand. Solomon was a man of peace in that sense. And not only did he build the temple in Jerusalem, but he also built several cities in Israel. And uh, the, the tale of the tape, the, the, the cliff notes for King Solomon was this is that his reign started off good and it ended up bad. Uh, Solomon's reign was kind of the beginning of the slide, the downward slide. If you can think about like a month ago, maybe, or a little bit more than a month ago, we had that slide up here that kind of gave the historical timeline and, and how everything was kind of a crescendo for, for Israel up to King David's reign. And still today, Israelis look at King David's reign as the pinnacle uh, it, it's the high point of the nation of Israel. And there's a lot that's happened, you know, before that, and there was a lot that happened after that. I, I get all of that. There were some highs, lots of highs, lots of lows. If we think about even the last century events uh, for Jewish people. But they all look back to King David's reign as the pinnacle of the, of the nation of Israel, of the empire of Israel. And uh, Solomon, of course, born to Bathsheba, ended up being the successor to the throne. And as I mentioned, his reign started off not just good, but great. And it ended up not just bad, but horrible. Uh, and it began this downward spiral. Now, <clears throat> the irony for Psalm 127, written by Solomon, is that uh, while Solomon did a lot of physical building that was marvelous, 
that was great, of course, the temple and the various cities that I mentioned. Um, there was an area where he really failed, and that Solomon really failed to build his family well. He really failed to build his family well. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, uh, to fill in the blanks of why it was tough to build <laughs> a good family. Many of those uh, worship pagan gods. That was a part of the downfall. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to expand so much on the seven, on the thousand women that were in Solomon's life. Other than I heard a preacher in the past say, hey, he says, if you have a, family, a favorite wife, you're not doing it right. That's kind of the tale of Solomon's deal, right? Uh, how do you pick out of a thousand? Still, with all of that uh, going on, and the fact that Solomon was on kind of this downward spiral as a king, and the nation was on a downward spiral, God still used Solomon to be effective for his purposes. He still used Solomon to be effective for his purposes. So let's dive into it. Back to verse 1, Psalms 127. Unless the Lord, it says, Solomon says, unless the Lord, uh, the Lord there is Jesus himself. We would see him. He may not have known his name, obviously, but we look from our side of history, we look and say, hey, that's, that's Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. He didn't know his name, but he is talking about Jesus. How do I come to that conclusion? Well, a combination of verses out of Romans chapter 10 and Joel chapter 2. Paul writing to the Romans about everybody's need for the gospel. He says in Romans chapter 10, follow along and here's where you get that conclusion. He says these famous verses, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's talking about the Lord. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, a quote out of Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a quote out of Joel chapter 2, which Joel chapter 2 is this prophecy about the great and awesome day of the Lord. Uh, Joel chapter 2, should you, a flag should go up in your mind if you want to window into what's going to happen at some point. Put a pin in Joel chapter 2. It's well worth the read. I read the whole thing just to get to the last few verses. And actually verse 31 talks about the great and awesome day of the Lord, talking about Christ. And Joel 32 says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant of whom the Lord calls. William Barclay, a 19th century a Scottish theologian and author and pastor, says this, If a man calls Jesus kurios, which is the Greek word for Lord, he is ranking him with the emperor and with God. He was giving him the supreme place in his life. He was pledging him implicit, uh, pledging him implicit obedience and reverent 
worship. That's what it means when we use the word Lord. When, when you're talking about the Lord, you're talking about Jesus. This, is, this description, this little quote, is what that means. So we don't take it lightly. We, we, don't, we don't take it uh, with, a, with a soft grip so much. Like, this is important. And the question kind of rises in each situation that we face, uh, where is the Lord in these situations? Where is the Lord in these situations? With each thing that we put our hand to, we could ask ourselves, where is the Lord in this situation? Hey, number one on the agenda, back to Psalms 127, here's where he is, is that Jesus is the builder. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord builds the house, which is, implies that Jesus is building something, He's putting something together. He's constructing something. So unless the Lord builds the house, the psalmist says, they that labor, labor in vain. A couple of challenges for us, uh, maybe encouragement, however you want to look at it. Our challenge is to look around and see what the Lord is doing and join Him in that work. Like, what's God doing? Where's God moving? What's God setting up for, for you as a family, you as a couple, us as a church, you as an individual? What's God setting up? What opportunities are there for us to jump in and bring the gospel into our community, into society where God is at work? Because, hey, here's the deal. God's always at work. He's always at work in this community. And so our job as Christ followers is to really just dive in, mine that out, be, have our antennas up and our eyes open and say, hey, here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity. And just jump in with whatever God is doing because God is always building. He's always putting something together. He's always putting something out there as an opportunity to expand His kingdom. Now the Bible says specifically that unless the Lord builds the house, so another question is, is what house is Jesus building? How can we apply this first verse? Uh, and I want to say this, you can take a real general view, a real general view of what God could be doing, uh, and, and that would sound something like, well, God loves everybody, so God's just reaching out to everybody. <clears throat> That's pretty hard to get your hands around. You might be able to conceptually understand it, get your mind around it, but it's pretty hard to get your hands into, okay, God's loving everybody. Well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me as a Christ follower? I would rather look at two specific building projects that God has on His agenda. The first one being the church, and the second one being your family. So the first one there, a little sub-point, is, is that Jesus is building His, his church. <clears throat> Jesus took his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I'm going to dive into the next passage we're going to is in Matthew 16. But just a little background of Caesarea Philippi. We just kind of, you know, flannel graph. It was a spot, you know, in Sunday school, that type of thing. So it's just a spot on the map. You know, it was just one of the places that Jesus went to. Let me tell you, that's not it at all. Yeah, it was a place that Jesus took his disciples. But it was like the sin city of the first century. It was the Las Vegas of Israel, right? What happens in Caesarea Philippi, what? Yeah, it stays there because it was just that bad. It was just that bad. 
It was at the foot of Mount Hermon in northeast Israel. And it was known for its pagan worship of the god Pan, as well as Baal worship, a variety of other different pagan uh, religions. And in that pagan worship of the fertility gods, uh, prostitution and debauchery was normal. That's why I say it's the Las Vegas of the first century for Israel. Right? It was prostitution and, and all kinds of debauchery and sin and, and all this wickedness took place there. And it was normal. It was 100% normal. On the side of a mountain cliff there in Caesarea Philippi, uh, at the side of this mountain was a cliff. At the foot of this cliff was a cave. And this cave was believed by the locals to be the gate to the underworld. Literally, it was believed in that first century that it was the gate to hell. So if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, a lot of the blanks will then fill in of why, why did Jesus use this phraseology? Why, why did he make this emphasis when he says, it says he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that, <clears throat> who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Hey, uh, he, he's, trying to, he's trying to get the pulse of the community. He's trying to understand where the, what are the disciples hearing when they're going into the market, when they're in this area. What are they saying? You tell me. What, is, what are Jesus is saying? Hey, guys, what do people say? Where, what's the pulse of this community in regard to who I am? So they said, hey, some say John the Baptist. Eh, not John the Baptist. He's already on the scene. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So there was a lot of chatter. There was a lot of chatter in the community as to who Jesus was. There was a lot of different opinions that were being floated around that region as to who this guy was. And he said to them in verse 15, he says, okay, all right, all right, but who do you say that I am? Who, who am I to you? Who am I to you, he says to his guys. And Simon Peter, the guy that often spoke up first and loudest and fastest maybe, Simon Peter said in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say that you are the Peter... He's calling him Rocky, if you want a modern terminology there. Hey, Rocky, we'll just call you Rocky from now on. You're Peter, Petros, means rock in Greek. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. With the backdrop of the first century sin city, Jesus establishes his church. He starts right there establishing his church. In that place of all places in Israel, right? It, it could have been different. It could have been somewhere else. I'll get, I'll get into that. But he builds his church, the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly, the household of God, is first pronounced by the Lord in, in what's conceivably the worst possible place in the nation. And he says, hey, and the gates, I'm saying I don't know that he pointed to the cave or not, doesn't matter. 
But he said it right in that proximity. He says, hey, and the gates, what these guys believe hell, where the portal is, the underworld, these aren't going to prevail against my church. It was really kind of a, a thumb in the eye to pagan worship of that day. He specifically took them there, and he specifically made this pronouncement that he was building his church. Jesus is building his church not on Peter as a person, not on some kind of hierarchy that started with Peter, but he builds his church on the confession and the revelation that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the foundation. That all of prophecy in the Old Testament pointed to this guy. That everything, that the, everything they were looking for in a deliverer since the Garden of Eden pointed to this guy. And he says, that's why I came. This is why I've come. That I could bring relief and forgiveness for sins and that I could build my household on this confession. Jesus makes this declaration not in the splendor of Jerusalem or the solitude of the temple, but in the center of a spiritually broken town. It's quite dramatic. It's quite a picture. It's an excellent picture of the fact that the church is not to be built on personalities or programs. Jesus is building His church on this timeless truth that He is the Messiah and that He has come to restore the broken. And He does that one person at a time. He starts off in the most broken place Declaring, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going to build. This is where, this is where it's all going to start, and this is the reason why. And he does it one person at a time. You know, the, the motto for the Christian church when it comes to evangelism should be simply two words. One more. One more. We look at everything in, in hundreds or thousands or, or tens of thousands or millions in hopes that there's this massive thing that starts and this big revival, we even sang about it uh, today, and, and I get it, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not down on the song. But really, uh, the Jesus method is one more. Just one more. Just reach one more. How do we do that? We saddle up with what God is doing and what the Lord is building, and we just reach out to people, and we do it one person at a time. So not only is Jesus building His church, Jesus is also building his people. Uh, <clears throat> we have a few builders in the house. I've done a little building. I wouldn't necessarily brag on it. But uh, it hasn't fallen over yet, so I guess that maybe we're good to go. But if you think of just generally speaking a building project, uh, a, a building project comes down to, to this process. It's just a series of decisions. It's a series of decisions. And there's some decisions that can kind of go either way and it doesn't matter. Like you might, uh, you know, well, we want to put a, you know, 16-foot addition this way. No, let's turn it and put it on that end of the house. doesn't matter, right? Uh, the decision to, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little building project. Um, when Tammy and I were first married, we started to renovate this old house that was probably over 100 years old when we were first married, which was a long time ago. And... Um, and uh, so we took this approach, which is totally wrong. This is why I said, um, and it, this didn't fall down. We did burn it down, which is a different story. But um, 
Yeah, that's a different story too. But <clears throat> Luke, you would never suggest that anybody do this. You know where we started remodeling this house? At the roof. We started upstairs. We tore the upstairs off of this house, uh, reconfigured it so there'd be more room on the third floor. All the while, the foundation, it was missing a whole wall, right? Like the hill behind it had caved in this wall, and the other three walls, uh, and, and I don't know what possessed me to do this, uh, I excavated all the way around this thing, and then we started working upstairs. And so the, all the other three walls were exposed, and, and well, yeah, and the fourth wall was missing, and I did go in and jack it up. I mean, it wasn't super dangerous, but here's what was dangerous about it, is that none of the concrete foundation had any rebar in it. It was all just stacked stone with a little bit of concrete kind of slapped in the crevices. And the more I worked on it, and I walked downstairs, I just noticed there was more rocks down on the ground. I'm like, where are these rocks coming from? And then I started looking around. There's these little pockets there where there used to be a rock. And the more work we did upstairs, the more these rocks would eventually start falling out. And I don't think this is safe anymore. We might not want to be in this house if it falls down. It was a whole series of decision points, and we started at the wrong spot. Uh, I want to say this. It was a great lesson that when Jesus is building his people and when Jesus is bolting uh, his people together into family groups, uh, his ways are perfect. We're not perfect, but Jesus' ways are perfect and how he goes about it. Men, as leaders of our homes, we must understand that we have this duty to teach and train our kids about who Jesus is, about what God's plan is, about what the Word of God says. And we can't just expect, like I kind of expected, well, I'll kind of get around to the foundation. I never did get around to the foundation. We can't just expect for our kids, parents, to just uh, uh, absorb Jesus because uh, we bring him here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday or a Monday night. We, we can't just have that blind expectation. Ah, they'll just get it. They'll just get it. We need to be diligent. We need to be intentional. It's easy to slip in the other direction. Uh, there's a great example out of the Old Testament, by means we're in the Old Testament. There's a great example of that a backward slide. If you look at Joshua chapter 24 and then Judges chapter 2, Joshua, who is Moses' right-hand man, who uh, became the next leader of the nation of Israel, who was an awesome warrior, uh, he was a great follower and great followers then make great leaders. Joshua was, was Moses' closest follower, became his successor in leading Israel. And Joshua says this, he says in Joshua 24, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day, who you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whom land you are living. 
And then he says this, a statement of conviction and direction. He says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's the last of the book of Joshua. Two chapters later in the Bible, Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, says, and after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Now what that means is, is after a whole generation had died off, after that whole generation had died off, the Joshua generation, after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up and who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, <clears throat> the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashereths. So it's real easy for it to go backwards. And if there's just a, if, there's, if the parental tactic or if the church tactic, or if your family tactic is, hey, they'll just get it, then you're doing it wrong. Then I'm doing it wrong. Then we're doing it wrong. We can't just have that expectation. Hey, uh, they'll hear it, they'll, they'll pick it up, they'll figure it out for themselves. That's not the way it works. This whole generation that's described here in Judges chapter 2 was not intentional about what Joshua and Moses before him had to say. Jesus is building his church by building his people, by building families, by building marriages, by bringing uh, those, uh, those of us out of the world and into his family, whether, whatever, uh, whatever status that is, rich, poor, single, married, doesn't matter. The second thing it says there in verse 1 is Jesus guards then what he builds. Look at Psalm chapter 127 again. Against, Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for, he gives, <clears throat> for so he gives his beloved sleep. Now there's some implications here in verse, and we haven't even gotten out of past verse 2 here hardly. But there's two implications here in this uh, verse 1. And it's summarized this way. If the Lord is not in it, it's a worthless pursuit. But if the Lord is in it, then that's the only pursuit. If you don't get anything else today, get that statement. That if the Lord's not in it, Solomon says, then it doesn't matter, it's not worth doing. But if the Lord is in it, it's the only thing worth doing. And he gives us that implication there Jesus is our protector and we can rest in his protection he will preserve and protect what he set out to do uh, there's been times in our history where this right here of which we all now probably have dozens of copies there's millions if not billions or trillions of copies around the world now there was a time where this where this was just I mean you couldn't find it there was a time in human history where, where this is what people were giving their lives for. This is what Christians were becoming a martyrs for. Because they wanted everybody to have a copy and the powers that be said, no, 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 no. No, that's reserved for special people. That's reserved for special people. Guess what? God protected His Word. God protects what He's building, whether it's the church, His Word, whether 
it's our families, that Jesus is our protector, and we can rest in that protection. Spurgeon says this, note that the psalmist does not bid the builder cease from laboring, nor suggest that the watchmen should neglect their duty, nor that men should show their trust in God by doing nothing. Nay, he supposes that they will do all that they can do, and then he forbids them from fixing their trust on what they have done and assures them that all creature effort will be in vain unless the Creator puts forth His power. I love that quote. I love that quote. Where is God expressing His power? Where is God showing His protection? Where is God building something in this community and the communities around us? I I get it. We're stretched out from Ford to Kettle Falls. And so Addie might not be your home community where you live, but dive into your community and see where God is at work and join Him in that. Because you have His power. You have His protection in that. Parents, this is the essence of parenting. That we need God's plan, we need God's power, and we need God's protection to parent. And the reality is, is that you get one shot at it, right? A good friend of mine, and I won't, I won't give his name out there, but um, he kind of has a backhanded way of, of handling these things. He says this, uh, and I can't, it makes me go, <clears throat> e. but to quote him, he says, hey, everybody has the right to screw up their own kids. Now, I, I, I get it. That's probably not something you're normally going to hear in church. But the reality is, is what he's saying is he says, you've got one shot to get it right. And if you don't get it right, then it's going to be wrong. We get one shot at it. Uh, I've always been a little squeamish, I'll be honest with you, on uh, preaching about or doing a lot of teaching on parenting. Uh, And I'll tell you exactly why. Because until our kids were out of the house... Uh, the jury was still out, whether we did a good job or whether we did a bad job, right? And so before we had kids, hey, I was an expert. Ask me anything. Like I had answers for everybody else's kid problems, right? I could solve anybody. Then, and there was a great book by Phil Calloway, you know, uh, everybody has answers until they have kids. And we read that. It was a, it's kind of a funny, funny little novel, easy read. But, um, but, I, but through the years, I've been really kind of, standoffish. I kind of regret that in a way. I regret that in a way. And the reason, the reason why I was standoffish, as I said, is, is I wanted to see, like, <laughs> you know, are our kids going to get off? Like, are we going to take advantage of the one shot that we've had to raise our three kids and, and launch them, and we'll get into this in a minute, and launch them out into society in a productive way for the Lord? That was our, that was our goal. And so we kind of went through our parenting years just kind of in a way, just wondering is, you know, is this, is, are, are we doing it right? Are we doing it wrong? Um, Solomon goes on to say in, chap, in Psalms 127 that the building that God's doing here is not about concrete and wood, but it's really about the next generation. It's about the next generation. I've gotten a lot more questions about parenting actually since our kids have left the house than I ever did before. I don't think that's a bad thing. 
But Psalms 127, verses 3 through 5 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So Solomon really hones in on this building program of what God's doing. He's building his church. He's building families as well. He's protecting his church. And he's protecting families as well. Then he pivots and talks about this idea that kids are a heritage. They're a heritage and a reward, he says there in verse 3. What a contrast from our current worldview that that's out there. The current general worldview, I say it and I paint it with a broad brush intentionally because I know it's not everybody that's out there. And I know that not every non-believer out there thinks this way. But generally speaking, in the days that as we were having kids, I will say, there was this attitude about kids. There was this type of attitude uh, that, hey, are, are you ready? Are you ready to have kids? Are you, ready? are you sure you're ready? Are you sure? Hey, nobody's ready when you have kids. Let's be honest. I don't care what generation you were raised in. Your parents weren't ready. Right? They're, you're just not ready. But this idea that kids are a burden, and so somehow there's this like magical benchmark that you can reach, that you're ready to have kids, is a facade. It paints kids as a terrible burden. And a burden is the opposite of a reward and heritage. It paints kids as a restriction to freedoms. The current worldview. That, oh boy, you know, once you have kids, you know, you won't, you, you know, bro, you won't be able to go out and, you know, have a good time with the fellas. Or you won't go out with, you're not going to have a ladies night out. You know, so, so your, your, your freedoms, your social freedoms are really going to be shoved down this funnel and they're just going to cease to exist. That's the social worldview when it have to having kids. So they create all kinds of opportunities and ways to get around that. Uh, that kids are expensive. Reality check, kids are expensive. But it's cast in a negative light. They say that currently, uh, and this is without, this is before inflation has taken off, but uh, recently, you know, that it cost a million dollars to get a kid from birth to 18. That's, the, that's a pretty average cost. But that expense is seen as a negative thing rather than an investment in what God is doing. As Christ followers, we got to see that as an investment in what God is doing. Like, I'm happy to pay that price. I loved paying that price. I didn't see it as a negative, but socially, so many times, it's cast as a negative thing. Hey, you don't, you know, well, is the Lord going to provide or not? This, the last one I wrote in my notes was is that, uh, which was kind of similar to restriction of freedoms, is that socially, in our current worldview, that kids are, they impose upon the me time. The me time, like, you know, it's, it's an imposition to have kids 
because your me time is going to go away, uh, the transition there for believers is that your me time becomes us time. And if you're not mature enough to make that step, you know, if you're not mature enough in your faith to see that that's what God is doing, you're going to struggle with that, even as a Christian family. Notice the different emphasis here in Psalm 127 that Solomon brings out. That the current worldview puts this emphasis on man being the priority, where the biblical worldview puts the emphasis on God his, and his blessing being the priority. And that's, that's, as Christ followers, that's what we have to gravitate towards. Is what is God's plan, uh, and, and, and how is that flowing out from, from our lives? How are we joining Him in that? And are we putting the emphasis on His plan and His blessing being the priority, or is it human-centric? Post, in a post-Christian society, we've largely lost sight of the biblical truths that we were to pass on to our kids, such as what we would find in Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Socially, socially, we've lost sight of that one fundamental, that one core doctrine of the Christian faith that has stood the test of time in a broader context, we've lost sight of that. The biblical worldview is that the, that of the next generation from Psalms 127, and that's this, that kids are arrows in the hands of the warrior. Kids are, they're heritage, they're a blessing, and they're arrows in the hands of the warrior. The first implication here is the fact that, uh, speaking to fathers, that we as fathers are warriors. And I would say socially, we've kind of lost sight of that too a little bit. But as fathers, as a Christian husband and father, you're a warrior. Like you're warrior number one in your home. You're a warrior, the Bible calls you. Fighting a good fight of the faith, as Paul had said to Timothy in chapter 4 from last week. A couple of things about warriors can write these down. Warriors take great care to see that their battle gear is ready for action. That's the interplay there between a father and his kids. Warriors are practiced up on their skills. I talked last week about, about being, pro- like, well, how are you practicing to preach the Word of God? Warriors are practiced up. Not only is their stuff ready to go, but they're ready to go both physically and mentally. They're ready to go to work. Warriors are practiced up on their skills. The third one is, is a warrior, <coughs> warriors know how, when, and why to engage in the fight. So their gear's ready, they're ready, and then they have a clear understanding of how, when, and, and why that they implement. That's, that's a warrior's posture. That's, that's a warrior's readiness state. As they know how, when, and why to engage. They're fighting the good fight. I would propose to you, and, and I'm as guilty of this as any over the years at times, that oftentimes we're not fighting the good fight. We're fighting side skirmishes amongst one another rather than the good fight of the faith that Paul talked about. That's not knowing that, that, and I can say for myself, there was times where I was remiss 
I was off in knowing how, when, and why to engage in which skirmish. Now for the arrows. Here's a few things about arrows. They must be carefully shaped and formed. They must be guided with skill and with strength. They must be given care or they will not fly straight. They must be aimed and given direction. They will not find direction on their own. They are, in some respects, only launched once. Hopefully launched once. They're an extension of the warrior's strength and accomplishment. And they have potential for both good or for evil. I remember as a young guy uh, going to church up in Summit, and the pastor that was there, the pastor that started this church, uh, pulled a real controversial move. I didn't think it was controversial. I thought it was great. Uh, But he brought a gun to church. Not just a pistol. It wasn't concealed. He brought a rifle to church to make the point that this is a, a piece of wood and steel. That's all it is. But it can have two purposes, and only two. It can be used for evil in, the wrong con- in, in, in certain situations. It can be used to promote evil, or it can be used for good. And that decision is not up to that piece of metal and wood, that decision is up to the person that holds on to that piece of metal and wood. And our kids are kind of in that same sense. The arrows are kind of in that sense. They have the potential for a lot of bad. And hey, let's be honest. There's no pain like kid pain. Right? We know we, parents are kind of shaking their heads. They get it. There's no pain in life like kid pain. Or there's no joy like kid joy. Because the same arrows have the same potential the other direction. They have a tremendous potential for joy. And you guys are a joy. I just want to say that about our kids. Not my own personal kids, although they lump them in with the group. But I love our kids in our church. I love the kids that I get to work with day in and day out as I coach. They all have potential, and Arrow has great potential for good or for evil. That's a little look at what an arrow is like. There's a little something there that we can take away when, when, when we think parents about how we're raising our kids. Do we see them as something that we're launching out into society? And that's intentional. Arrows don't fly by themselves. I've never seen an arrow fly by, I've never seen a bullet take off by itself. I've never seen an arrow just say, oh, I'm gonna just cozy into this bow and push my way back and then take off. It doesn't happen. It's an act of volitional will and choice by the person that's holding on to that. And parents, that's you. That's you. You're the ones, just like Tammy and I were the ones, to put our kids in the bow, pull them back, and let them fly. Here's the result of those arrows being rightly shot out into society. The last two phrases in Psalm 127 gives us that look. They shall not be ashamed, and they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. To close out, we'll tackle the first one first, and this is not going to take too long, so if the worship team wants to 
prepare themselves. <coughs> Excuse me. They shall not be ashamed. Uh, shame is the devil's tool. Shame is the enemy, Satan's, I would say, probably his number one tactic to lock down people is to keep them ashamed of either what they're currently doing or what's happened in the past. So shame is the devil's tool to keep us quiet, to keep, it, keep us from being effective in the lives of the people that are around us. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is, is that the gospel is Jesus saying, hey, I've come to pay for your sins that you can't pay for and to remove the shame and the guilt of those sins. And a lot of times we, a lot of times we're, we get it, we get the uh, removing of the guilt part of it, so I don't feel guilty, but I still hold on to the shame. And Jesus says, uh-uh. I've come to remove your shame. That's how you think about yourself in current situations or in past situations because you're ashamed of it. Jesus says, you don't have to feel ashamed. I've come to take that away. Arrows that have been launched into society are not ashamed. God's been doing this shame removal. You know where shame first shows up? Shows up in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. Their eyes were open to the fact that they had sinned. And their first response was to hide in shame from God. And, and humanity's been doing that ever since, that first occurrence. And it's Jesus who comes in and says, You don't have to, you don't have to try to hide yourself from, from God. So I'll take that shame away. I'll take it upon myself. He removes shame. It's fair to say that the Lord wants His people and He wants His young ones. He wants the arrows in the hands of the warriors to be shame-free. Now, when you're shame-free, you can do what the last sentence says. You can speak with your enemies in the gate. Uh, the gate of the ancient cities was a place where business and justice was metered out. This verse speaks about children of the godly having places of prominence and influence in their communities. They can sit there. They can sit, they can sit there and talk with people that are on the other side of a situation. That's the enemies, right? They can sit and talk with somebody that they don't agree about, not feel shameful for where they are, be confident in who they are, confident in their own convictions. They can sit and go eye to eye, toe to toe, if you will, with their enemies. Psalms 127 in closing gives us a look at God's ideal for us. God's ideal for us. And I want to pause and say that it's not in my notes, but I'm thinking about it. Because there might be a lot of questions like out there, like such as, hey, uh, yeah, this ideal that you're talking about, Mark, is not a reality <laughs> in my life growing up. It hasn't been there. And there's some things in my life that are so broken that it's like it's not going back into some spot. You can't put it back in the bottle. I get that. I want to say this, if that's your scenario. I want to say that where ideals are kind of lost, so to speak, that grace abounds there. That, gra that, God's, grace, that God's grace abounds there. 
And just because that ideal might be lost doesn't mean that you or I, brothers and sisters, have to be locked into a spot of shame and regret and and constantly just stressed about the past or stressed about what's going on right now. We don't have to be there. Where ideals are missed. And you might be thinking, hey, I I wish I'd have heard this 30 years ago. I, I I wish I'd have had a look or somebody talking about Psalm 127 when I was raising my kids and now they're often, you know, it's a disaster. But where ideals are missed, God's grace still abounds. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of that. Psalm 127 gives us a look at God's ideals for us in kind of metaphor form. A prosperous city where enemies are kept outside. The secret to that protection, obviously Jesus, is that the buildings are well built by the Lord. And we can be confident and able to deal with those then that oppose us. That should be kind of a a guiding view as we raise our kids. A guiding view. What's God doing? What's God doing in building your home? What's God doing in building this church? What's God doing affecting our communities? Jump in there, two feet, hands and feet. Join Him in that work. Let this be the guide. Let this be the guide, not Dr. Phil or, you know, back in the day, what was the guy? Phil Donahue when I was growing up. Phil Donahue was, you know, the, the, the current Dr. Phil. Like, let this guide your decisions as parents. Let this inform you. Let this convict you. Let this encourage you. And let your kids be confident and able to deal with those that either are or will oppose them. If you would stand as the kids join us, let's sing together.